As we continue our Stories in Glass series, this morning we look at the window for St. Paul, and we hear in the scripture a brief piece of his road to Damascus experience from Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The rosebud in the pulpit does indeed herald the arrival of Caroline, our latest, newest member of the family, our granddaughter. And maybe some of you about now would love to see an image of her on the screen, but you're stuck with St. Paul. If you look at the window, you'll see what I mean. It's, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, it's like all the others, it's breathtaking. But unlike the others who tell stories about Jesus, Paul is, he's not, he's not a favorite, not for a lot of folks. In some of his letters, he, he comes across as a misogynist. He actually says, I forbid women from talking in church. And, and, if, and if women have questions, you know, they should wait to ask their husbands when they get home. Mansplaining, isn't that the term? But we live this side of the suffragist movement and glass ceilings are breaking everywhere. Or, or in other letters of his, he seems to condone slavery or at the very least tolerate slavery. We live this side of the Emancipation Proclamation. We live this side of the Civil Rights Movement and in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement. In some ways, we can feel more enlightened than the apostle himself. I, I don't know anybody who wants to throw a brick through his window, but I know a lot of people who don't want to celebrate him as saint who just turn, kind of turn their back on that window. I have no intention of showing you pictures of, of Caroline or any of our other grandkids, but, but there is a kind of parable I stumbled across this week. And it happens when you're reading to kids. And I don't know how long it's been since you read to your kids or grandkids, or maybe you can recall being read to when you were little. But it's that moment when the adult reader decides, you know, this is really kind of dragging on. Maybe I could skip a page or paraphrase, you know, just it's when it's when Goodnight Moon gives way to 30 pages of the adventures of Elsa and Anna, and you're just kind of tired, but you know. There'll be a tug on your sleeve, and the little voice will say, that, that's not what happens next. You skipped a part. That's not what they say. And at a moment like that, you might as well plead guilty. 
I think a similar dynamic applies to Paul's story, or Saul, as he's known here. His name will change later, but let me fill in some of the blanks, and I may well call him Paul at times, but at this point, he's Saul. The, the, the thing is, when the kids point that out, it's true in this case. We did skip a part. There's something before this, and we didn't finish the story either. We cut it off there at verse 9, so let me fill in the gaps. The first time we're introduced to Saul, some people have gotten together to stone to death one of the saints, and they, they lay their coats at his feet. That's how he's introduced. And sure enough, this persecution starts up, and he becomes the de facto leader of this movement, jailing men and women alike. And that's what he's up to here. He's on the road to Damascus to do more of the same when, boom, the blinding light, the voice from heaven. There's nothing, by the way, about him being knocked off his horse, although that's part of the lore and tradition, and you'll see it in artwork. But Saul's being called to something different. He's blinded. He can't see. And what happens next is a man named Ananias is told... You need to go to him, lay hands on him, and tell him what is going to happen in his life. And Saul's reluctant. I mean, Ananias is reluctant, of course. I mean, he knows the reputation of Saul. But he does. He, he, he lays hands on him, and something like scales fall from his eyes, and he can see, maybe for the first time ever, clearly. And he is told what he will do. He will become an apostle to the Gentiles. I love that story, and I love that line about you will be told what you are to do. Well, good for Saul. But what about us? There's no voice from heaven saying, and, and you'll be told what to do. There's no voice telling us. How, how are we to make sense of this story? What does it mean for us? In some ways, the best device for understanding this particular story, and really lots of them, is to understand what kind of story it is, the literary form, the genre. Here's an example. If a bunch of us were gathered around a fire pit or out around a campfire telling stories, and someone says, hey, hey, did you hear the one about the traveling salesman who, you know, it's a joke. There's a joke coming, and you listen through that lens that filter. But if, on the other hand, the person says, and maybe they've got that flashlight shining up their face, there's a house on that hill that some people say is haunted. Well, you know, there's a ghost story coming. And you listen differently to the joke and the ghost story. What kind of story is this? Well, for a long time, scholars have debated what kind of story. And some have said, and this is kind of the traditional read, this is his conversion story. As we would say nowadays, Paul converts to Christianity. But I don't think that's accurate. I mean, it's not like he gives up his Judaism. And after all, the Jesus he will now follow was a Jew. I don't think this is the Billy Graham crusade, the Apostle Paul or Saul becoming some kind of Christian. And that's why more recently scholars have said, no, 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 that, that's not a conversion story. Not in that sense, at least. 
It's a call story. Like the prophets in that first testament who are called by God to some kind of task. Saul called to a ministry, we would say. And yes, his is with blinding light and voice. After 30 years of teaching at the seminary, I've heard so many call stories and very few of them like that. Some. I could tell you about when I was looking at a Greek New Testament in college and suddenly in that moment, I felt called to a life, a vocation of ministry. And I could even say, so what are you called to? But I'm not sure either one of those entirely tells the story. What if this is, what if this is a, a healing story? And, and there are two clues in the text, or one clue in the text and actually one in the window. The first one is that he can't see, and then Ananias lays hands on him, and suddenly he can see. What if, what if Saul is being healed of his blindness, and not just any blindness? And that's where the second clue comes in. In the window. You can see it. You, do, you just focus in on it. He's got a sword in his hands. What if this is Saul being healed of committing violence in the name of God? What if he had become so blind to what he thought was right that it could actually justify in his mind violence? I read recently that Heinrich Himmler, the Nazi commander, when he first visited one of the camps, he vomited. He couldn't take it. He was repulsed. But the author said, but shortly thereafter, he steeled himself and he learned to get used to it. How does it happen that someone who knows violence is wrong, gets seduced by it. I don't know if you saw the billboards. The one I saw was on I-35. It was for an exhibit at Union Station. It had one big word, Auschwitz. And under it, not long ago, not far away. And that is the truth. On January 6th, we saw people in the name of what they thought was right commit acts of violence with Nazi symbols and Christian symbols. Anger and bigotry and religion all rolled into some crazy mix. In Saul's day, a few of these Jews were persecuting followers of the way, followers of Jesus. But for most of history since, it's been the other way around. The church persecuting Jews and so many hate groups. Anti-Jewish thinking. You can't imagine how much time we spent in seminary trying to undo anti-Jewish readings of the scriptures. Pharisees, Sadducees, whatever it was. And I remember one time a student kind of pushing back. He, he said something like, okay, you know, maybe we need to correct this reading, but I don't see what damage is really done. After all, none of the people in my church are violent. Well, maybe. Maybe. 
But what I said was, well, here's the way I think about it. I think of hate speech in the name of God as a bullet. It's just a bullet. You you can't hurt anybody with a bullet, right? Well, it depends in whose hands you place the bullet. Because some people with hate speech, they find a gun and they act on it. Some years ago, Parker Palmer, in his book, Healing the Habits or the Heart of Democracy, he had an interesting comment. He said, if we're going to heal the divide in our world, it starts with the everyday conversations we have. I'm not prone to violence, even in debating with people. But I can't tell you how many times when describing someone else, maybe a politician with whom I disagree, I have used words that are a form of violence. And I am trying really hard to be more precise and fair. You may remember when the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh was attacked horrible thing two days within two days of that Instagram tallied 11,696 posts of hatred for the Jews who they said had perpetrated 9-11 there is a form of violence that happens in Capitol Hill but there's another form that happens in social media or even in our hearts. But there's another way to be in the world. There is another way to be in the world. You, you remember when the mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand was attacked? The Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, they were comforting, reaching out to a mosque there in Pittsburgh to say, I am so sorry about your brothers and sisters on the other side of the world. Well, when the Tree of Life was attacked, 11 members killed. It was at the memorial that the leader of that mosque said, we pledge that we will even stand guard at your synagogues so that you might worship in peace. And if any of your people are afraid to go on errands, we will accompany you. That is the road to Damascus. I think about all the times that we have thought, and it's our tendency, but, but my view, I mean, this is the way it is. I know it is, and our blood was boiling. We knew we were in the right, and especially when it comes to claims about God. I, I think about that story. I think I've told you before. It's one of my favorites about a rabbi, Hillel, who lived about 100 years before the apostle Paul. He and... Uh, Another rabbi by the name of Shammai would have these debates. It was friendly debates, but it, it could get a little bit heated. And they would say, well, this is the way. And there was, no, this is the way. And the followers would debate. And they couldn't really resolve those things. But a couple of times tradition has it that the very voice of God came down to settle the dispute. And one of those times, the voice said this. On the matter of such and such, the school of Hillel is correct. And the school of Shammai is correct as well. But 
the proper view is that of Hillel. And the people said, how, how can that be? How can they both be right? And how can one be? It doesn't make sense. And the voice said, the school of Hillel is proper because they were kinder and humble and they stated accurately first the views of Shammai. Therefore, they are right. That's the world God sees. And if the scales ever fall off our eyes, that is the world God wants us to see for our children and our children's children. 